Our scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning the reading at verse 50, page 1791 in your Bibles. I'm grateful, too, for your secretary being willing to put a little outline in the bulletin because the sermon could be a bit content-heavy or even come across as a list of the benefits God has in store for his people in the life everlasting. So hopefully the outline helps. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning the reading at verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. Uh, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. A death has been swallowed up in victory. Aware, O oh death, is your victory. Aware, O oh death, is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. These the very words of God. And in connection with this scripture, I call your attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 22, page 29, if you wish to follow the reading, page 29, back of the blue hymnals, question and answer 58. Question, how does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Answer, even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no man has ever imagined a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. This is the teaching of our confession. Friends, we're going to proceed this way. I'll go through verses 51 and 54 in a very introductory overview and summary way 
calling your attention to four key words and defining those words and then a few other phrases that may not be immediately obvious. And then we're going to go on from there and talk about a couple of other things in specific. Entering heaven, occupants of heaven, heavenly living, and heaven's God. And I've put a little bit of alliteration in the outline if that is helpful. So start with 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54. 51 there. Listen. That means attention. This is important. I tell you a mystery. In the Bible, a mystery means that which is formerly hidden and not revealed. Not a whodunit, like the word means today, usually. And the thing that was formerly hidden in Old Testament times was Christ, and in particular, Christ risen from the dead, and the fact that Christians who are in Christ share in that resurrection. Continuing on in verse 51, we will not all sleep, but we will be changed. And that word change suggests that this life will have changes in the life to come. One of the words we'll define. Verse 52, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, that's quick, at the last trumpet, the word here probably is the goat's horn, shofar in the apostles' thinking, which sounds a bit like a trumpet, a little lower, moaning, groaning sound and not quite so staccato. The twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself. Easy metaphor for us, putting on clothes must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Another one of the four words we'll define. Verse 54, when this perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then if we have time, we'll briefly... Note the verses that follow at the end. Now the four key words I pick out from a little bit of a long text here are number one. They're all describing the life everlasting. Change, which means the life everlasting will have similarities to this life, but also changes are different. And then imperishable, which means cannot perish and therefore will not perish. And then immortality, which means cannot die and therefore will never die. And then victory, which means win or battles on this earth done and we'll talk about some of our battles. Victory means Conquering, conquest, 
and such things. Those are the key words in the text that we'll note. They're all somewhat parallel in meaning. They're all a little bit the equivalent of Christ's last word from the cross and also a result of that last word, which is, it is finished. Christ on the cross finished something that resulted in Christ's resurrection and also in Christ's people, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I think if there's one key New Testament text, maybe besides justification or one piece of theology, it's this union with Christ, in Christ, as you get in your cars, and on the highway can go 65 because you're in your car, so also in Christ we can do things that otherwise we couldn't do and that we could not do in and of ourselves. Our union with Christ. As Christ was raised, so will his people be. And as Christ now in heaven enjoys, and notice the catechism used that word joy, the life everlasting, so will we. Now, at this point, I want to give you a caution, because tonight's sermon is difficult in the sense of, I must say what the Bible says, and I may say no more. And neither may anybody else. You get wild speculations about the life everlasting. Here's a quotation from Martin Luther. at something that's called diet, which means church meeting, of Worms, W-O-R-M-S. And if you say that in English, the boys and girls sometimes laugh like you're having a meal of worms, you know. But in German, no such thing comes across. But listen to Luther and his testimony there. He said, unless I am convinced by sacred scriptures or by evident reason, I cannot recant. For my conscience is held captive by the word of God and to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. And I want you to know that anyone who talks to you about the life everlasting has not been there. Me too. And I must say what God says, and I can draw what Luther calls evident applications or evident evidence from the word of God. So listen carefully. I won't keep repeating Bible texts, and I won't keep repeating um, this business of evident reason, but you must be given both, the word of God and evident reason about our subject, the life everlasting. Now, with that much said, let's move into applications, basically, about what the everlasting life is going to be all about. The first thing I have here is a question. Do you have fears about 
entering into the life everlasting. I'm going to give you a quote from John Bunyan from his Pilgrim's Progress, the second best-selling book in all of history. Listen to these words, Bunyan to evangelist early in the Pilgrim's Progress. He said, I perceive by the book in my hand that I'm condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I'm not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. Then said Evangelist, why not willing to die since his life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, because I fear that this burden that's on my back will sink me lower than the grave. And he goes on from there. And then I want you to hear. Bunyan was scared to die. That's why I'm quoting him. And God's people sometimes are too. I certainly am. I'd rather live than die, and I fear some things about death, pain, suffering, and so on. But I want you to hear Bunyan's description of Christian when Christian dies. Listen to this again. Finally, they came to the river of death. As I looked upon that wide stream, Christian says, I could never make it through those cold waters. But hopeful, his companion encouraged him on and said, We must pass this way to get to the city. And so they put their feet into the water and started across. But no sooner had Christian entered the river until he lost his footing and the waters flowed over his head. He cried, The sorrows of death have compassed me about. The billows go over my head. I shall never see the land that flows with milk and honey. With that great horrors fell upon Christian so that he could not even remember the mercies he had enjoyed in the way of his pilgrimage. Yet his companion, hopeful, sought to comfort him and to help him up. Christian went under several times. He suffered from an awful fainting fit and was plagued by many doubts. We'll get to doubt soon. But the angels assisted them, and at last they stood safely by the other side. You know what the author who wrote this in Bedford Jail is telling you? He was scared to death to die. And so I ask that question first. Are we scared to die? If so, keep listening. We'll come to comfort. The second thing I want to mention is these near-death experiences. Do you know anyone who's had one? I've had a couple church members who did and a relative. We started hearing about them in the 1970s. First, these near-death experiences were mostly positive, but then after a while, people who said they went to hell and come back. Now, what do you make of that? What does a pastor tell people about these things? I can only tell you what I tell them, consistent, I think, with Luther's testimony to Scripture and evident reason. I say that when it comes to our experiences out of body, remember that experience is not infallible. Different witnesses of accidents see things differently. 
Experience can be mistaken. The only authority on the afterlife is the Bible. And I can't tell you if your near-death experience is real or not. All I can do is tell you what the Bible says about the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. That's how I deal with such things. And then I'm going to mention another thing because it irritated me, something awful. I haven't seen it on television for some years. Once I saw a program where there was a medium, I guess you'd call him, named John Edward. There was an audience of people asking about loved ones gone on before. And Edward would say things like, Aha, I see your loved one who died on the other side, and they're okay, and they're happy. Why did that hit me wrong? That's why I remember it all these years later. You'd hear nothing about Christ or salvation, not to mention the fact that a medium is what Saul, remember King Saul went to consult a medium? Now, I'll let the subject go because I know you know better than to go to these state fairs and so and go in and see the fortune tellers and mediums. But again, I come back to what we know about the life everlasting is in the Bible and follows by way of evident reason from what the Bible says. We know no more and we know no less. But I have one more question here in connection with this entering heaven. Do you think that the God of special grace, remember the Apostle Paul? He could heal a couple people by miraculous healings. But with his thorn in the flesh, no healing for Paul. He tells us he prayed three times for healing and God's answer to that prayer was no first time, no second time, no third time. But then God added, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now here's some evident reason. If God gives special grace to deal with our thorns in the flesh, can we not deduce that God will give us special grace at the time he calls us into heaven? John Bunyan again, fearful of death, but history tells us that when the time came for him to die at 59, he died peacefully and ready to come to his God. And so therefore, my friends, the first thing about the life everlasting is you may be dealing with fears. I've only had one church member in 40 years of ministry who convinced me she was eager to die, and she wasn't all that convincing. But you may have fears. You may have heard of near-death experiences. There are people who pretend to be mediums who can see into heaven. The bottom line of entering into heaven is that God is going to call us over. And I assume as the time comes for us to enter into the life everlasting, there will be special grace for those 
moments. Maybe some of you have seen it in loved ones who've gone on before. And that brings me to the next set of sort of facts about the life everlasting. Heaven's occupants. There will be angels in heaven, won't there? Bunyan testified the angel help with dying. Some near-death experiences mention angels, the good angels, of course, not the wicked angels. Hebrews 1.14, are not they angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I don't know if we all have a guardian angel. I suspect not, but we have guardian angels, that's for sure. And then there's the apostle's word, you know, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. We Christians will be occupants of heaven. What about the matter of family and friends there? Now, here's some evident reasoning again. Remember Moses, whose dates are suspected to be about 1400 B.C. or 1100 B.C., depending when the Exodus was. And then there's Elijah, whose dates are considered to be in the 800s or so B.C. A long time between those two lives. And to the Mount of Transfiguration, came Moses and Elijah who knew each other and were there together. From that I deduce that we certainly will have family and friends in the life everlasting. Won't be a lonely place at all. And what about others? Many others, in fact. Probably there will be many. Where will the New Jerusalem be? On one planet? Maybe, who knows? There's a lot we don't know about heaven. When I taught young people in catechism, my favorite lesson was always the Lord's Supper one when my wife had cookies and stuff and we would have a grand time with the kids. But my second favorite one was the lesson on heaven. I'd love if I had more time to share with you some of the questions children asked about heaven. But I guess we won't go into that. I, I won't bring that up tonight. But heaven's occupants, angels, we Christians, you cross the river of death to heaven, family and friends. I know someone whose experience was in the last stages of cancer, a vision of relatives gone on before saying, you're next. Others, probably many others, I don't know. Bible speaks of thousands upon thousands or myriads upon myriads. And of course, God will be there too. But I want to wait to talk about God separately. Which brings me to the next point, heavenly living. We've talked about entering heaven, heaven's occupants a little, the life everlasting. What will that life be like? Well, the first obvious thing to me is that we'll have some kind of home there. Remember John 14? Jesus preparing his disciples for death. Here are his words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
So they were troubled. Not only about Jesus' death, but maybe theirs too. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. A heavenly home. And I don't know what it will be like. You run out of answers so quick. But we are promised a heavenly home ahead. Jesus went ahead to prepare that. Will there be rewards in heaven? Certainly so. A few passages speak of that. One of them is Matthew 25 at verse 28 where the faithful servant with the five talents multiplied the five and he was given the one talent of the wicked servant who wouldn't use the talent he was given but buried it in the earth. Rewards there, labors there, yes. And then I've chosen to put three emotional words. Joy, which was mentioned in the catechism teaching, you may have noticed. Peace. Philippians 4.8 says we can experience the peace that passes all understanding in this world already. Well, then it seems to me evident reason that we can possess the peace that passes all understanding, that passes all earthly understanding in heaven. That's evident reason, right? Peace there. And then I put the word comfort. Catechism teaches that. What's your only comfort in life and in death? Comfort means in Latin, with strength, My favorite word for it is security. You'll have peace or security there. Now we've gone through a lot of facts about the life everlasting, and I appreciate that you're listening, but I want to change the focus, if I can, just a little tiny bit at this point and ask what... I would call a few questions God's people deal with. I'm going to answer those questions in terms of a statement I like to make. No more, never more, forever more. Question number one. Do some of you deal with doubts about the life everlasting sometime? I'm going to respond to you this way by saying hear this scripture a man said to Jesus in Mark 9 after Jesus had said everything is possible for one who believes immediately the boy's father exclaimed I do believe help me overcome my unbelief now please listen to me very carefully for just a minute Because in a sense, doubts are normal. You're taught to doubt in your experiences of life, and there's things you should doubt. And if we transpose that to the spiritual world, if you take belief 
The opposite of belief is disbelief, not doubt. If you have strong faith, and Jesus spoke of mountain-moving faith, you don't want to move Pike's Peak, but he means the mountain problems we deal with in life. If you've got mountain-moving faith, call that 8, 9, or 10. That's fine. But if you've got weak faith, 2, 3, that's still faith. And some people have weak faith because they've been abused or trust has been broken as a child. But you can still have faith in God. So I ask, do you have doubts? And the proper response, it seems to me, is to call out to God, I believe, help my unbelief like that father. You sang a song earlier I thought was beautiful. In doubt and temptation, I rest, Lord, in thee. My hand is in thy hand, thou carest for me. My soul with thy counsel through life, thou wilt guide and afterward take me in glory abide. Even if you have weak faith, my friends, God is the one who saves. Praise him for it. That was number one. My response is doubts. When you get to the life everlasting, you'll have no doubts, nevermore, forevermore. The next question is, what about depression? Read every so often that depression in our days is on the grow. Any of you suffer bouts of depression? The psalmist of 42 did. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. If you suffer from depression, get the best medical help you can. There is good medicine for it. Never commit suicide, by the way. Some depressives cry a lot. Depression can result in suicide. Suicide is never the answer. There's always a better answer. But if you struggle with depression, and maybe a few of you do here, when you get to the life everlasting, you will have no more depression, nevermore, forevermore. Next question. Do you struggle with your spiritual enemies, the ones I call the big bad three? Martin Luther spoke of those so well. He spoke of our enemies, the devil, old nature, and the world. The devil's stronger than we are. If the devil accosts and affronts, what you need to do is say what Jesus said in the temptations in the wilderness. It is written, because Jesus is stronger than the devil. See? That if you struggle with the big bad three, the devil, your old nature. We have to put to death our old nature. You have a new nature that is a Blessed gift of God, and it's powerful over your old nature. So therefore, your new nature can say, I won't. To the remnants of the old nature that want to drag you down. The devil, the nature, the world. How many of God's people don't follow the worldly ways or just 10, 15 years behind the world? Why don't we ever hear the word antithesis anymore, meaning living 
antithetically or against the thesis or ways of the world. Why are we so worldly? Now, I don't mean that to be an accusation to you. I don't mean to be getting negative now. The point I want to make is we've got enemies out there, those big three bad enemies. And when we get to the life everlasting, there will be no more of those spiritual enemies, never more and forevermore. Next question, have any of you fallen into sin recently? Succumb to sin, big sins, public sins, secret sins, habitual sins. And it's so easy to fall into sins on the internet, so private, you know, and so many people fall into pornography and such stuff, including God's people. My response to you is, you're not too big a sinner for God. Not at all. If we confess our sins, John tells us he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And my main point is when we get to the life everlasting, no more sinning, never more, forevermore. One more question and I'll leave it. Do any of you lack what they call assurance of salvation? Did you notice Pilgrim's lack of assurance even at the time of death? Let me respond on that matter of assurance. The word assurance has become an emotional word. And so therefore, I'd rather use the word certainty, which is less emotional, less subjective. Assurance of salvation, if by that you mean the assurance of emotion, uh, emotions go up and down, Emotions are different in people. How about thinking in terms of certainty of salvation? That's the whole point of the last part of Romans 8. Our certainty is in God, not our feelings. See? And if you struggle with the matter of assurance, some ways I don't blame you. If you struggle with doubts and depressions and fall into sin, assurance can wither away. And now again, my main point is in the life everlasting, there will be no more lack of assurance, never more, forevermore. Let me try to comfort you before touching on the last point just a little, if I can do so. God's grace has been at work in you. It's all of God. Election is of God. Being born into the Christian home, many of you were born into, is of God. Praise God for those parents. Baptism is of God. Your calling is of God. Your profession of faith is of God. Your faith is of God. Your faithfulness is of God. God is working in you, and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You can say with the Apostle Paul, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I kept the faith. And consider this too, dear friends, our trials of which we touched on many in this life before we get to the life everlasting. Those trials are for your profit, aren't they? They keep you from presumption 
which are so much of today. The easy assumption that I'm going to heaven because I'm a nice guy or nicer than my naughty neighbors or got a halfway decent attitude, God must just love me. That's presumption, and there's way too much of it out there. Your trials that direct you to God keep you from presumption. And so continue in the way. And then we'll move on to the last point, and that is heaven's God. Interesting in the Bible. You know what the Jews looked forward to? Seeing God. Now in Exodus 34, we have that account. Moses said to God, I'd sure like to see you. God said, you can't in this life. I'll show you as it were behind me. Old Testament picture language. You can see my names, my attributes, my actions, and so on. But not me face to face. And then there's 1 John 3, the life everlasting. We shall see him as he is. Can you imagine that? Incredible. The life everlasting will include a vision of God suggest it will include worship that is meaningful. Isaiah told the people once to delight in the Sabbath. When I was a child, I didn't. I'd always get a headache on Sundays for some reason. Never get headaches as an adult, at least almost never. One headache a year is above average for me, but what went on back then, I don't know, but I didn't like Sundays. But now I delight in the Sabbath, and I suspect that in the life everlasting, there will be a Sabbath, and we'll delight in it even more. Vision of God, worship, praise, exalting God for who he is, thanks, thanking God for what he does, does and did. Evident reason tells me that we'll worship Praise and thanks in a wonderful way we can't even begin to understand now. The life everlasting. And then very briefly, the rest of the text here. Verse 55, where death is your victory, where death is your sting. When I was young, I had a school teacher friend who also was a beekeeper. I remember putting on the bee uniform and helmet to help them, attacked by a thousand or more bees, but none of them got through. That bee protection armor was very effective. And Jesus is your armor, folks, against the sting of death. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And then no wonder the apostle concludes the way he does. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory. Repeats that word victory to summarize it all. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the challenge, folks. And you're going out now from worship to live for God. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain.
Let's pray. Our God in heaven, that life everlasting, we'd like to know so much and we have so many more questions. But the things we addressed, may these things encourage your saints to go on the way, living now the life you've given them as charged in verse 59, and also looking forward to something that the Catechism describes as eye has not seen, ear has not heard, amazing and wonderful above and beyond all we can think or imagine. Amen.